wherever you are in the world. Welcome to today's podcast and thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Mona with Mona Lu International, where I work with organizations and leaders seeking to enhance their cultural intelligence in today's diverse world so they can increase their productivity, harmony, and team performance. We have a special guest this evening. For me, it's evening. For her, it's morning. All the way from the other side of the world. An American-born entrepreneur and successful speaker in multiple languages who currently is living in Taiwan. Mrs. or Miss Diana Watson. Hello, Diana. Good morning to you. Good evening to me. Hi, Mona. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Uh, there will be a lot of people listening to us, and they will be, I am certain that they are eager to know who you are and know more about you, your journey, your story. So why don't you go ahead and start introducing yourself? Hi, well, great. Thank you again for having me on. My name is Diana Watson, and I am from the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States. For those of you that don't know where Philadelphia is, it's right in the middle of New York and Washington, D.C. I was born and raised there. And when I, I always had an interest in living in other countries countries and learning other cultures and languages, my sister sparked that interest in me as well. She is currently a Spanish and French instructor in high school, and she would come home after, after school and teach me everything that she learned in class. So in her Spanish class, she would learn all these different words and then come home and then pretend that I was her student. She was the teacher and she would teach me everything. And I remember we used to just look at the globe and spin it around and look at all the countries and talk about all the different places we wanted to go in our life. So it was, it was a great opportunity, even for, as a child, to know that as a Black woman, I just felt as though I still had so many opportunities afforded to me. My sister made me believe that it was that we really could just do anything and that we weren't going to let our, our race or socioeconomic status stop us from exploring the world. So when I went to university at the time, study abroad programs had just started and it became a requirement for different degree programs. And my parents were very conservative. I didn't come from a family that traveled extensively. That wasn't something that they were used to other than my, my sister had did a small stint abroad, but that wasn't something they were used to. But since I studied international business, I told them I had to go abroad. So they had to go along with the program. So my first country that I went to was France. And it was everything that you can imagine. It wasn't like Emily in Paris. <laughs> Emily in Paris, you know, she's wearing all these fancy clothes and having all these experiences. It wasn't like that, but it was, it was really, it was, it was great. And I met, met one of my best friends there that were best friends until this day. My French sister, my, my host sister, were still best friends until this day. And then after I graduated from university, I was in the Peace Corps for a short while in Nicaragua, which gave me a good experience of what developing countries are like. And just, just being really able 
to appreciate a lot of what we take for granted in the United States. And then I went back to this, I was in the US and I discovered that I had a knack for teaching and I went into the education field. And then I, but you know, as you know, teachers don't make a whole lot of money in the United States. So then I went into international education where I worked at an oil school in Indonesia. Uh -huh. And after being there for two years and studied Bahasa Indonesia, which is what their language is called, I then came to Taiwan where I am now. And I've been here for the past 15 years where I've studied Mandarin. I've continued my career in international education where I train instructors. And I also became a professional speaker where I learned how to give presentations, not only in English, but also in Mandarin. Yes, I, uh, I met you through actually through your speech in Mandarin and I thought it was phenomenal. Although I did not understand anything, it was just so funny. You felt so comfortable on stage in a different language, which we don't see that much. And I was so proud of you. Um, I'm going to take you back, okay? How were you received as a Black woman? How were you received in every country from U.S., France, Nicaragua, Indonesia, and Okay. Thank you for asking that question because it's, it's something that I think a lot of your listeners, whether they're, whether they are a person of color or, or not, they do need to be aware that 25 years ago, when I first explored, when I first went abroad, people assumed that uh, American was someone with blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> and of course I don't fit this description. So when I went to France, a lot of people assumed that I was Muslim, that I was a Moroccan or a Tunisian. And sometimes that resulted in some unfortunate stereotypes. Sometimes I was followed in stores and, and things of that nature. But one thing that I realized that I did that made them stop, like for example, if someone was following me in a store, I would just start speaking in English and instantly like oh, American. Oh. And then they would just walk away instantaneously, instantaneously. So I got into the habit when I was with my friends, like every, anytime I ever went shopping, I always made sure I took some of my American friends with me and we would just be loud, being the stereotypical, loud, annoying, obnoxious Americans. Then they, nobody ever bothered me at all. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. So you were followed every time you went into stores? Many times. I would say 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's just like followed for what reason? I, 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 I get it. You said store stereotype and they, they thought that you were from this other part of the world. But what, even if you were, why would anyone follow you? I mean, I don't, I, I, I would assume that they were thinking that I was going to pickpocket something, that Got I was going to do something. So, oh. so, and you know, and I would talk to my, my, my French Muslim friends and they would say, oh yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. So, you know, I figured out how to handle that really fast. And that was actually very fascinating to me because 
of course, we have a lot of racial tensions in the United States and, and people of color suffer from a lot of discrimination. But honestly, the first time I remember where it was blatant like that was when I was in France, wow. really, where it was blatant like that. Now in the US, I know other people where they've had instances like that often. I didn't. I was fortunate. I can't remember. I can't remember experiencing anything where it was that obvious when I was in the U.S. The first time I remember experiencing that on a consistent basis where it was a pattern was in was in France. But I mean, that's not to say that I still didn't have an amazing time. Yeah. I, I learned, you know, you learn when you're in different countries, there's different things that are good and bad that happen. And you just take take it as like, a part of the whole experience. And then you look at it as a whole, how, me- how much was positive, how much was not so great. And you can still end up having a really great experience. So I don't want to say these things, anyone who's from France listening say, oh, Diana hated my country, this was awful. Yes. Please don't assume that. Yes. You know, I really love France. I still love France. And when I have a ton of money again, I'm going to go back and just eat my heart out. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. If anybody, anyone listening from France, here Diana said it. It's a great country, great people. All right. Uh, now, I, I'd like to um, ask you, how did that make you feel? Um, the, the treatment or that sense of being different. How, how, how did it make you feel? Actually, I, it, it, in many ways, it made, it made me stronger. Fr- okay. Being in France, it's not, the, it's not the, the easiest, it's not the easiest culture. It's closer to, you know, it's Western. So mm-hmm. now when I look back at it, I say, oh my goodness, French people are so similar to Americans. But at the time to me, it was so different. So I, at the time, the way that it made me feel was it, it made me tougher it made me stronger. It, it, it was a good, it was a good test, a good test to see if I could really cut it being overseas, to see how resilient I was, to see Mm -hmm. if I was like this fragile little glass doll that if anybody just did the slightest little tap, would I fall over and break and boo hoo and want to run back home to my, to what I was used to. And it didn't, uh-huh. like it didn't face me at all. For the most part, I, I figured out a way to just deal with it. And once I figured that out by, you know, acting like an obnoxious American, it solved the problem and I got a big laugh out of it. If anything, I would say it bothered, it bothered my friends more. It would bother them quite a bit. So I noticed that when, if we went out and like, I, I, one time I was in coming through Egypt and I was traveling and they were, I was in customs and they asked me, where are you from? And I Uh said, I'm from the United States. They said, where are your parents from? I said, they're from the United States. They Uh said, where are your grandparents from? I said, the United States. They even went as far as my great grandparents. Wow. I said, they're from the United States. My friend who was traveling with me, who was an Italian American, she got so annoyed. Uh-huh. And I told her she had to chill because this is immigration in another country. Yes. And I said, listen, 
I know a lot of people don't realize this, but there were slaves who were brought to the United States and they've been there for 300 years. Mm -hmm. I'm a product of one of those people. And I don't know, something in what I said clicked and he realized, wait a minute, right. I do know this. There is like Michael Jackson on the wall, Whitney Houston on the wall, Oprah yeah. Winfrey in the airport, and they're all black. But you know, they didn't make the connection. <laughs> and then he's just like, oh, right, okay, and stamped and let me go. But she got so frustrated. She said, Diana, you deal with this nonstop. How do you put up with it? And I guess it's, you know, it, it, it makes me tougher. It makes me stronger. Being a black woman in this world and traveling, it, it, it really shows that how, how resilient I am. And it's brought me where I am today, where I can say I've been living overseas for almost 20 years. I love it. And, you know, throw it at me. Yeah. I feel confident that I can handle it. Awesome. That's good to hear. Um, I can relate, but I will go back and, um, and ask you this question because you had mentioned that that France and the United States are both Western countries. They have a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences. Um, mm -hmm. Briefly, can you tell our listeners, what are those differences? If you can remember. Um, between, between France and the United States, what are the differences? Oh. They're both, obviously they're both Western, but they're different. The one thing that I remember that I, you know, now it just, it, it makes me smile. I remember that they were pretty rude. <laughs> I get it. Okay. <laughs> and the reason why I'm saying this with a smile is because once I started to be like unfazed and and I started carrying off more, more of their demeanor, they liked me more. And I liked France more. And it was good. And when I came back to America, I said, everyone is so friendly. Yeah. Why is everyone smiling and so friendly? Like, is life that wonderful? <laughs> you know you have become so French you just have like the arrogance and the you know like you're just confident and you just the way you eat the way you talk and they she she couldn't believe it she said a half a year of you living over there and you came back and you were a completely different person when you walked off the plane back then when people could see you walk up come off of the plane uh -huh. and I and I love that about myself I said yes like I'm like a French person now yes <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's good to know. I, I, and that is a difference, actually. Um, I mean, I've been to France many times and uh, and I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and sometimes it can be viewed differently here in the right. US. Right. Uh, you, it can be viewed. You're not you're not really arrogant. Um, you're not a show off. You're not, none of that. You're just confident and you feel good in your skin. And that's how it is. So let's move on from Europe and France to 
Next country was Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. All right. That must be a transition. Mm -hmm. Right? So talk to us about that. Uh, obviously, you were in France. You just getting adjusted and acquainted with the atmosphere, the people, the culture, and all of that. And all of a sudden, you are moving to um, substantially a different Uh, society, habits, culture. Uh, talk to us about that, please. I decided to go to Nicaragua when, because the Peace Corps, Peace Corps is, an, is a volunteer organization, which is a branch of the U.S. government that started, that was started by John F. Kennedy in the 60s. Uh -huh. And I wanted the opportunity to rough it, so to speak, in another country That was, that was developing. And since I was a business major in college, they wanted to send me over as a small business development volunteer to try to help particularly women, women uh, start small businesses so they could support their families. Mm -hmm. Well, the title sounds wonderful, but when you're in countries, developing countries, things move a lot more slowly and you end up spending a good chunk of your time just getting used to the environment and them getting used to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was placed with a family during my, my language immersion period. That was amazing. I had such a great experience with them and the country, even though people make these assumptions that it's incredibly dangerous while I was there for the most part, I felt pretty safe. Mm -hmm. Now this is a different time period. I know yeah. things change. Things change very quickly in Latin America. Yeah. But when I was there from 19 in 1996, I was very, very, I felt very comfortable. And I traveled a good part of the country by school bus. They oh. get recycled school buses from the U.S. and ship them down there. And that's how we traveled around different parts of the country. And in some of the places where I, where I stayed, we would only have water about twice a week. The water would come in about twice a week. And then the rest of the days we didn't have water. So we would have to store up in large trash cans, big, big buckets of water. And one was used for the, for, the, for the toilets and another one was used for us to, to boil and cook and drink and, and things like that. And I didn't have a problem with that at all. I didn't have a problem with that kind of living at all. I didn't have a problem having bucket baths in the freezing cold at night <laughs> or dealing with the super hot sun during the day. Yeah. I, it was, you know... And, and I love these different tests. They, uh -huh. Like France was one kind of a test. This was a different kind of a test. Yes. Now, the thing that was challenging about that position was, was dealing with the government and their rules and regulations on what to say and what to do and all that. And also my personal life at the time, I thought that I was going to get married. So I left early and returned thinking I was going to get married. 
that was a disaster that did end up working out thank goodness but I that that period of time that I was there I was really I was really thankful for it because uh, my Spanish improved that was a hot language to learn at the time I really flexed my my traveling muscles I said you know what bring it on I can handle water only two times a week coming in I can uh-huh. I can travel on school buses on rocky roads but uh-huh. you know, I was young I was young <laughs> now uh, 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 the same question here comes up. How were you received as a Black woman in Nicaragua? You know, it was fine. Uh-huh. So, so in, in France, they assumed that I was a French Muslim. So they still thought that I was French. And then in Nicaragua, they, depending on how I was dressed, and if I wasn't speaking English, they would assume that I was Nicaraguan. So it, so one of the things that's, that's great about being, you know, about my parents is that I'm a little, I'm a little ambiguous looking in different cultures. So they can't automatically make the assumption right away of what, of who, of what I am. They, it takes them a minute to see my mannerisms and, uh-huh. and listen to me speak to realize, wait a minute, she's a foreigner. And yeah. I like that. I like the fact that that they have to give me the benefit of doubt. I got lucky yes. getting that. And I'm sure that does make a difference in comparison to other people in my family where if they had traveled, where they can just point out right away, you're definitely a foreigner. Yes, yes. And um, tr- transitioning between the US, France and Nicaragua, um, has your communication style change did you feel that your communication style um should change from one culture to another and what would you say about this about the communication style between one country between the u.s france and nicaragua i would say from, from france with with france my french was pretty bad uh-huh it was pretty bad. Okay. I spent so much of my time focusing on overcoming the culture. Yeah. That was a big chunk of my time, just dealing with the culture, overcoming and dealing with that, that hurdle. I couldn't handle the culture, the language, you know, the dating, the, all that other stuff that came. It was too much. So yeah. my, my language skills actually weren't fabulous. Uh-huh. But in Nicaragua, I focus, it was my job to really focus on the language skills. So my communication style improved, but I would still, I would still say I didn't take the language. I didn't respect the language as much as I should have. And that's important for a lot of your listeners to know if they have plans on living overseas or they're interested in some kind of an emergent experience, which is a lot of what my, my work focuses on, helping people who are interested in immersion experiences overseas. Mm-hmm. You have to respect the language and the culture. If you don't respect it, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but you have to respect it. And with respect, comes a certain amount of dedication, interest, and care and practice. And I still was at the age where I was young. At that point, I was 22. 
I still didn't respect it and appreciate it as much as I wanted to. I focused more on like how much I was able to rough every, you know, rough it with every new challenge that I had with, with France. It was, you know, the people and their personalities and, and their, their, their ways. And in Nicaragua was literally the physical challenges that I was dealing with every day. You know, the, the, the cold at night, the hot during the day, the, the limited amounts of water, the, the streets with no street, street signs. So for oh. example, an address would be post, the main post office, two blocks west, 75 steps east. That would be an address. So if I had to find a location, I would have to say, okay, where is this main location? Okay, then I've got to go south or east and how many steps. There were so many other things I had to deal with. So I was still learning and working on my communication style, but I still didn't respect it. I just looked at it as a function of being able to do whatever I needed to get done. There was no love there that there should have been, but there wasn't. I get it. I get it. So it's a, it's just a struggle, struggle from a different kind of struggle in every country. And when we're talking about struggle, um, we have to mention uh, conflict resolution. Uh, and I'm certain that um, you were in some type or maybe, maybe not, but you can think of uh, a situation where you had to... Um, you had to work out some type of an arrangement or agreement to solve a situation. Um, I know here in the U.S. we are pretty much direct, although although things are changing. Um, to to uh, they're changing in so many different ways. But let's stick with the direct style of communication in solving uh, problems. Is it the same way? In France, when you have uh, a problem, you you felt you could speak about it openly, or you had to uh, stay quiet and make your feelings shown in a different way, or make your statement understood in a different way. Uh, and the same thing with Nicaragua. From what I remember about France, this is twenty five years, twenty six years ago. From what I remember about France, they loved it when you were direct. <laughs> They loved it. And I loved it because there was no games. There was no games. The complete opposite. If you were direct and really straightforward in what you said, that could be a disaster for your whole purpose of being there. A complete disaster. You know, you would make somebody lose face. They would be embarrassed. Yes. They just wouldn't want to, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to deal with you and then you wouldn't be able to do the work that you were sent there to do. So I would say between the two countries, it was, it was com- almost complete opposites in regards to communication styles. Okay. So now we move into Indonesia. Boy, we're traveling the world very fast. We're moving to Indonesia from South America to Asia. Okay. How, how was the transition? And what, what made you uh, think of Indonesia? I didn't. The oh, country okay. chose me. The country okay. chose me. So I, I was in Washington, D.C. I was living outside in Washington, D.C. at the time. And I was 
you know, I was a, a master. I had two masters and I was teaching in public school and the area was so expensive that it wasn't until after 9-11 happened that the rent prices dropped that I can afford a one bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. I was $1,500 away from qualifying for section eight housing. Wow. So um, you went, they chose you, you went to Indonesia. Here's another mm -hmm. uh, new world. Well, what, no, no. What happened was because I was struggling so much to make ends meet, living outside of Washington, D.C. as a public school teacher, I decided I went, I was working three jobs. I was teaching during the day. And then the school asked me to teach the parents, the adults at night. And I was tutoring. And when I was in the night school, I happened to see one of my coworkers and we were talking and she said, she heard about me, you know, I told her I lived in France, Nicaragua, and I love traveling and everything. And she said, Diana, she said, you should go into international education. And I said, international education. I said, what's that? And she said, I did it for 25 years, but I lost all my money, all my retirement in the dot-com bus. So I had to come back and teach in public schools so I could get a retirement by the time I'm 70 years old. Uh -huh. But she said, you're young. She said, you should go out for it. She said, they're basically American schools or oil company schools that are overseas where you teach children that are American or Canadian or whatever at these schools. And she said, there's this, uh, an organization, educational organization where they have fairs where they interview teachers that are only licensed teachers who have experience teaching in US and North American schools. And you interview and you can see if, you know, what countries are there and if you can get a job. And it just so happened after she mentioned that to me, a month later, I saw that they were having a fair in my hometown of Philadelphia. And I went and there was a desk that had Indonesia and no one wanted to go there because the Bali bombings had just occurred. Uh, and I said, I don't care. I'm open to Indonesia. So I went, they were thrilled. I got the job. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Okay. And then, then what? I, I am, I am here sitting excited. Like uh, I'm watching a movie and listening <laughs> to some exciting adventures here. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, so when I when I went to Indonesia, Indonesia was another huge change. I went there and everything was passive aggressive. Absolutely everything. You could never be direct about almost anything. Wow. <laughs> wow. What a change. It was a change. And Indonesia is a large country. It's it's the width of the United States. It's the largest archipelago in, in the world. So you fly everywhere, everywhere you want to go. You have to fly here, fly there. You know, archipelago for people, listeners who may not know, is like a large strip of islands. Yes. So there's so many different islands. And it's, you know, so each island is in some respects is almost like its own little country. So, so for example, Bali, Bali uh -huh. is Hindu with its own unique culture and language in comparison to where I lived, 
which was on like East Kalimantan on the island of uh, Borneo, which is shared with Bhutan and, and um, I'm not, I'm sorry, Brunei and uh, Malaysia uh -huh. and Indonesia. There's three con countries all on that one island. And I lived on one part where it was mainly Muslim, but there's three big languages of, of religions there. There's Hindu, which is in Bali, there's Christian, and then there's Muslim. So my coworkers that I work with, many were Christian and many were also, were also Muslim. And Bahasa Indonesia, which was the language they spoke, that was their second language. It wasn't their first language. Their first language was their local language. And the Indonesian people had created this language similar to Turkish, just within like the past 50 years or something. So everyone used that language as their lingua franca, but it was their second language. So it's a very easy language to learn. You only needed to learn about a thousand words in order to be able to have a basic conversation. Huh. Wow, this is a quite interesting. Um, I, I am uh, familiar with Indonesia, and I, I know that is the largest um, Muslim country in the world. Yes. The, the largest one. Yes. And by, I do know there are Christians and also um, mm -hmm. Hindus. So here, here you are in a new environment. What's your impression? What was your impression? Again, I, I, I felt I felt safer than I did in the United States. <laughs> what was your impression and how were you received? How about that? <laughs> you know, everyone was worried about security and everything. And so my first impression was, wow, they've got serious security here. I mean, everywhere we went, we all had our own personal drivers and cars and you know, there was security that would go underneath the, the you know, the, the hood of the car and inside to check to make sure there weren't bombs. And when I first got there, I'm like, whoa, everyone had these huge rifles everywhere you went. And in the beginning, it's kind of jarring. You're just like, wow, like there's all these. In Nicaragua, I saw some guns, but not a lot. Not a lot. And, but here they were everywhere everywhere every time you went anywhere you were you know you were checked the car was checked you know it was it was serious because the Bali bombings had just happened about a year a year or so uh -huh. before which was which was devastating on the Australian as well as the Indonesian governments and and I went there and that was the big shock the big shock was the amount of you know security and guns that I saw but I lived on a compound. I worked for an oil school. It was called Unical. Now Chevron bought it. Mm -hmm. And it was a compound where all the families and the teachers and every, everyone lived. So they had a medical center there. They had, they had um, recreational facilities, our apartments. Everything was on this big compound, which they were able to keep it secure and protect from the rest of, you know, from like, locals or other outsiders from, from coming in. And I felt pretty safe, but I always would want to go off the compound and explore the area. And the people would say, Diane, you need to be very, very careful. And I said, really? I feel fine. 
And every time I went out, I would, you know, I would talk to people. And then finally someone, an Indonesian said, you don't have to worry because basically we're not sure who you are. You look like you could pass as an Indonesian. You're not white. So you don't stick out. So we don't pay any attention to you. Wow. Yeah. So that's how I was received. I mean, once if they studied me, they would know right away, wait a minute, you know, this girl is, you know, she's not Indonesian, you know, she's, she's a Westerner, she's a foreigner, but from the color of my skin, my hair texture, you know, if I was just walking around and I wasn't wearing anything super fancy or nice and I had flip-flops on, they weren't sure who I was. Once again, I got the benefit of the doubt and I spoke Indonesian. I learned it, it, that was the first time where I realized I'm going to make sure I really, really learn this language because it also gave me a lot of benefits. Like mm-hmm. if you spoke Indonesian, it was an unspoken rule that if you couldn't speak Indonesian, you got one price. If you could speak Indonesian, you got another price. And if you were really fluent, you got another price. And then if, <laughs> of course, if you were local, you got the cheapest price. So I would tell them, I would barter all the time. And I would say, listen, I speak Indonesian. You're trying to give me the farm price. You're supposed to give me the speaking Indonesian price. And they always give it to me. <laughs> well, here's your discount for uh, knowing the language. Okay. That's, that's a good perk. <laughs> but, I, but you want to know what? They, that was one thing that they were straightforward about. That was clear in the culture. And that's another thing. If anyone is interested in living in other countries, that is an unspoken benefit. Yeah. Learn the language. Yeah. It's going to save you tons of money and hassle. <laughs> well, thank you for that advice. Uh, definitely uh, listen to Diana. Learn that language. Um, how, how can we work like successfully work with Indonesians from your experience? What style should we use to be obviously respectful to the people and also understand the mentality? How would we work um, the best strategy that we can use to work or successfully work with Indonesians? I would think, I would say the first thing, of course, is again, is the language. Mm -hmm. I had to learn Indonesian also to work with my coworkers. Uh My assistants, I had two teaching assistants. And it made our working relationship so much better. And they respected me more because I took the time to learn their language. That is really, really important. If you're working with people of the local culture, it is paramount that you at least make the decision to to, to the attempt to learn the language, even if you speak it horribly, you know, in the beginning, everyone's going to speak it horribly, but they'll give you that respect that you're, that you're spending your time, te- you're taking your, your time to say that I care about your country and your language and your culture. And I want to be able to communicate with you better. I don't want it to all be one-sided and you have to speak English all the time. Mm-hmm. So they, they gave me a lot of support just for doing that. They gave me a lot of support. And the second thing is religion is very important for, for Indonesians, whether they're Christian, whether they're Hindu or whether they're Muslim, 
it is a huge part of their culture and yeah. you don't have to agree with it. Some people don't like the idea of Ramadan where you don't drink even water one sip all day long or eat all day long, mm. but you need to respect it. So for example, when we knew Ramadan was, was going on, lots of people were still just like eating out in the open and drinking and they would constantly say, oh, it's okay, no problem, I'm all right, I'm all right. I always insisted that, no, I'm not gonna do that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be disrespectful. I'm going to, you know, I can still have my lunch, you know, off in the corner somewhere or drink my water in the bathroom or whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to disrespect your culture only because I'm not practicing, you know, I'm going to make sure that I'm, you know, that I'm just respectful. Yeah. And some teachers, believe it or not, took it even further and also practiced alongside with their with their coworkers to show their solidarity and their support and they weren't Muslim, but yeah. Ramadan, they would still practice. Yeah. So it's, I think, and I'm not suggesting that people do that, of course, but it, it does give you a tremendous amount of brownie points, mm -hmm. particularly in that culture that you learn the language and you really respect the culture. I would say that is 50%, if not more, of living successfully in Indonesia. Okay, that's good to know. Let, let's say um, here for us Americans here in the United States, um, what would you say we should know uh, when we have Indonesians here or doing business here? Obviously, they're not going to expect us to um, speak their language. They're coming here beside respecting their religion, beside respecting their way of life, what else should we be aware of? Don't make those mistakes. Okay. Ever. Ever. Mm -hmm. I see. That that's Asia. That's a lot of countries in general, and mm -hmm. that's Asia especially. But don't make them lose face. And if people are saying, "Well, what does that really mean?" Don't make them lose face. So let's say, for example, you're in a business meeting and both of you agree that we were, you were going to bring certain things to the table, certain items to be discussed at the table. And there were certain things they were supposed to prepare in advance. You talked about it. You agreed to it. They didn't come. They didn't show up with it. Lots of people were at the table. Do you call them out and say, oh, we discussed this. Why didn't you bring it? You don't do that. Got it. You don't do that because they, they're not the type to share their excuse. And it could be anything. It could be that they just forgot. It could be that a, a relative died and they don't want to tell you. It could be, it could be anything. It literally could be anything. And you'll never, ever know, especially if you make them lose face, you'll never, ever know. So what I tend to do after living in Asia, I, I know now, like sometimes I, I, I do get impatient and I just don't care. But generally, I would say 90% of the time, if I see that the person has made a mistake, I, as a leader, as, as a leader, I take on the responsibility myself mm -hmm. or I just drop it as fast as possible. 
and I change the subject, subject and we move on. And then later when I'm alone with them, I'll say, listen, what happened? Like, why did you drop the ball? Like we discussed this, this was supposed to be prepared or we were supposed to do this. And I learned that actually in Indonesia, I had an assistant that I really respected. And all of us had this deadline and we had to work over the weekend to get some things done, which, you know, in a school generally just work during the week. Yeah. And she didn't show up. She didn't tell me why she just didn't show up. And my other Indonesian assistants were so mad. They kept complaining the whole time. They were furious. Uh-huh. So I went to my principal and I said, listen, this is unacceptable. She's my assistant. It really made, you know, the other Indonesians were really mad. She just didn't show up. She didn't communicate with me why she didn't share. I said, I'm really, really not happy with her. I said, I really want you to take some kind of action. My principal's a Westerner and he's just like, hmm, Diana, I'm not going to say anything. And I'm like, you required the whole school to be here this weekend to do this work. What are you talking about? And she's just like bailed out. So I went to her and I said something. It destroyed our relationship for about six months. Wow. And later I found out from, from somebody else, another coworker, they said, her parents told her she had to go to church that day. I see. And I'm just like, and at the time I'm like, this is a job. Yeah. Job yeah. church? Like, this is a job. But after I lived there for a while and after being in Asia for a long time, when your parents tell you you have to do something, you have to do it. You have to do and it. And she was embarrassed having to come to me and say, listen, boss, I'm so sorry. I can't come to work. So her way of dealing with it was just not showing up and just not, not dealing, dealing with it. And she's expecting me to be mad, but not to say anything to her, make her lose faith and just let it go. And I didn't like, I was being more French and straightforward and saying, where were you? Why didn't you? And she just, it just destroyed the relationship. Yeah. She did her work, but she didn't do anything extra. She stayed very silent. You know, she just couldn't overcome that embarrassment. So for people who are listening, face in Asia, if you're dealing with Asians, it is huge. And you will never know the reason why <laughs> if you embarrass them. Yes, yes, I do agree. Having worked with Asians as well, I see or I experience the same thing for South Americans. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. And people from the Middle East as well. Yes. Uh, pretty much most of the vertical societies, that's how it goes. And people have to be aware of it and uh, find a different way uh, to approach the situation, uh, knowing that if they do it differently, they may offend the other person and really offend them badly. And it happened to me before. So I know what you're saying. So now, Let's move to where you are, Taiwan, the end of, uh, the, end of the train here, uh, the travel train, uh, Indonesia, and then you went to Taiwan. It should be um, similar, not similar. How did it work? How did it make you feel? Talk to us. Well, Taiwan, 
I've been in Taiwan now for 15 years. You must like it then. Well, yeah. Yeah, now, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's great. I, you know, Taiwan was the first country where I lived in. Number one, Taiwan is easy. I would say Taiwan is probably one of the easiest countries. It is. It was ranked. I forget which, which periodical I read this in, but it's ranked almost every year is number one or number two easiest countries in the world to live in. In what, what terms? Like when we talk about easy, what is it? Is it uh, cost of living, jobs? Um, I mean, what are we dealing with here? The culture. So for example, if you want to, if you move in here and you need to get set up, find an apartment, get your smartphone, get a scooter, get your transportation together, get a job, you can have everything all set up, done in less than a month. Oh, wow. Um, does the government help you with that? Or are there, there are organizations that uh, help you settle that quick? No, just- You can just figure everything out yourself for the most part the most challenging thing about being in taiwan is just mandarin really it's, it's it's just it's just mandarin if you can and mandarin's hard and mandarin takes a whole lot of time you know but other than other than that they make it incredibly easy and convenient to do almost anything so if you come if you just now with COVID, things are different the, con the country's closed uh -huh. but before COVID, you can come here from facebook ask some people if there's any jobs you show up you interview the job you come here on a tourist visa they like you or they don't like you then you go and you get the visa you know the work visa then with the work visa you can quickly find an apartment online you go and check the apartment you pay your two months down you have your apartment you go to the cell phone company you buy a cell phone you get your service through 7-eleven they buy you prepaid minutes and you can do this also in the airport i mean everything is just quick you can get a scooter wow. for like two or three hundred dollars you have your transportation everything's very conveniently located it's easy like the culture is even easy. So there, I tell people that Taiwanese people are like Chinese Californians. They're Got very it. laid back. Laid back, yeah. And liberal. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. And how were you received as, a, as an American and as a Black woman in Taiwan? Again, there was, there's a, there's a split, you know, when I was in, when Depending on where I was, uh -huh. people knew right away, okay, this, you know, she's, she's a foreigner from someplace, but yeah. I also passed for an uh, Aboriginal here. They have uh -huh. Taiwanese Aboriginals here that are my color. Some of them have like more, you know, kinkier hair texture like I do. So there's still some people where they're like, are you Taiwanese? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm American. They're like, oh, 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 because my Mandarin has gotten a lot better. So they're, they're, they're really not sure. And the students that I teach here now, they, many are darker than me. So they're not sure. So a good percentage of the culture here is Han Chinese. But then there also are, are 16 different Aboriginal tribes and they all look different. And they all vary in facial, like their, their, their features and their skin tones. They go from very Chinese looking to very, very dark looking. So, you know, again, depending on where I am and what the situation is, uh -huh. sometimes 
people, they're not, they're not sure they don't know. Or they, or nowadays a lot of people are biracial. Ah, okay. Yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of biracial people as well, you know, have, have black, have, have, have black, have Taiwanese or have white, have, have Taiwanese. So they're, the society here is most, some of the people, not all of the people. I would say a good 20% of the people are aware that, wait a minute, this girl could be biracial. Yeah. So I'm not sure. So they, yeah, they ask, which is good. It's moving in the right direction. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. How long did it take you to uh, learn the language? I'm still learning the language. (laughs) Well, the way I saw you speaking, Diana, it looked like you lived there all your life. (laughs) Oh, wow. I was, uh, I started learning the other day. Nihao, how? And I am, I am, I am just learning a few sentences of uh, greeting sentences and started to learn numbers. I said to myself, well, this is going to take me quite a long time. (laughs) Chinese is is pretty hard because I remember when I was in the Middle East, there were like five phrases I learned right away. And I would repeat those phrases in the Middle East over and over again, like shukran, afwan, like alhamdulillah. Like there's just few things I just kept saying over and over again. And everyone was so happy. They're like, that's all the Arabic you need. (laughs) But probably not in Taiwan. (laughs) Taiwan, you've got to speak it. But you know, but you know what? The Taiwanese are also just very laid back people. If you don't speak Chinese, like everyone's okay with that too. They're just okay with everything. The only thing that they're not okay with is COVID. Yeah, Um, no one is okay with COVID. (laughs) No one at all. Um, As far as the the rat race lifestyle that we have here in, in the U.S. Do you have the same thing in Taiwan? Is it uh, when you say laid back, uh, pretty much we're talking about an entire lifestyle that, that is laid back or just some aspect of it? Well, the, uh, the Chinese in general work a lot. Mm-hmm. They're, they work a lot. I wouldn't say that they work, they work as hard as they do, of course, in mainland China. In mainland China, they work they work very hard. I, I hear stories about they don't even get bathroom breaks. They have to wear diapers oh. because they work, you know, like eight hours straight or whatever. In Taiwan, that's not the case. But they still, we still don't get that many holidays off, you know? So it's more of a thing that, okay, I own your body. You have to be in the office. <laughs> For a certain number of days, certain number of hours. It doesn't matter how productive I really am. You you have have to physically be here. Uh Uh-huh. And the opportunities as far as um, uh, someone like yourself, are they open to providing opportunities for all um, foreigners or so-so? It's good now. It's good now. It, It used to be a thing 20 years ago. Where if you weren't North American and you weren't white, you couldn't get a job teaching, teaching English here. Wow. And yeah. And I mean, both of those things, if you weren't North American and you weren't white. So let's say you came from England or South Africa or Australia, like, and you had a different kind of accent, they were not interested in you. They were only interested in North American 
teachers from like Canada or the US. So that was one thing. The second thing was also, you know, being white because in international schools, you know, even like any international schools, any cram schools, they just had this picture perfect English teacher as being this white person, particularly women. I mean, after a while they had to take men, but you know, Asian cultures, they always feel more comfortable with women teaching their children, mm -hmm. teaching their kids. And, you know, luckily with not just Obama, but just in general with more and more people travel, different kinds of people traveling and there were less Americans, less North Americans available they had to allow more Australians and South Africans and Irish and people to get these jobs. It's still not easy for them. If someone's from Scotland and they're applying for a job, it can still be more challenging here, wow. still, still. Now in regards to color, you know, I found that there is still discrimination, but it's, after Obama became president, it was a lot better. You didn't have to provide the history lessons to people anymore. They were a little bit, they were a little bit more open to having different types of people teaching the children in schools. But I will say I, I'm in public school. I teach public school where we have lots of rule, like lots of laws to protect, you know, against discrimination and all these different things. But I taught in a, one public school a few years ago and I had braids in my hair. Uh -huh. And that caused a huge thing at the school, having braids in my hair. Yeah. So, you know, being overseas, we still, you know, we, we still have a ways to go. Yeah, wow. Um, I, I mean, this has been um, so rich and a lot of information that uh, you, you're sharing are just gold. And I'm so appreciative of what you are sharing and being candid about your information. That's so important for our listeners. Um, I know we, we are almost uh, running out of time. And um, one thing that I, I would like to... Um, hear your opinion or 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 actually um make it a conclusion for our talk is what would you say what would you tell women and women of color okay what would you tell them or the nuggets that you can share with them that can help them in the future they can they can help them in their journey journey of either professional journey or personal journey whatever you can uh, share with them that helped you um manage living in all these countries and knowing or understanding about all these cultures um and for you to be out on in all these different countries that's so brave that a lot of uh, girls, a lot of women, especially uh, women of uh, color, um, they don't have or they, they're not so much encouraged to travel, experience the world, 
and be successful in other parts of the world. They don't have that vision or it, 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 it was never instilled in their mind that, listen, there is another world out, out there and you can be more mm -hmm. successful if you just try. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you can what? say whatever you want, really. It, it, it's uh, an open statement here. Okay. What I would like to share with with women, mm -hmm. and particularly particularly actually with women of color, because uh -huh. my experience, because an experience for for white women, and I'm saying this, I'm saying this as a person who has all different kinds of friends. You know, we talk very candidly about the differences with between our experiences of mm -hmm. how we get through life, and women in general go through certain kinds of, you know, different challenging experiences. All women do. It doesn't matter what country you're from, what color you are, certain challenges all of us are struggling to get through. Yeah. And then there's a subset of that, which is particular for women of color. And Women of color, I mean, you know, there are some women where they look white, but they are of a different religion. You know, they, are, they practice a certain kind of religion and they're discriminated against. So they're still thrown in as a woman of color. Or a person who, for example, I have friends who are biracial and they look like they're, they're white or they're Caucasian, but they have family members, they're, Lat they're Latino, or they have family members that are different persuasions. Or even nowadays, I also have, I know people who have adopted children who are of color, so they still feel like they belong in that group. Uh -huh. I want them to understand that these special challenges that you're gonna go through, whether it's yourself, your loved ones, embrace them mm -hmm. you really have to embrace them taking on the angry victim role doesn't do anybody any good it doesn't mean you don't have a right to get angry you know i still get angry i get angry all the time i go yeah. and get angry and i fuss and i go and i get it all out and then you know you pray you meditate you do your thing and you're just like okay what is my plan on how to handle this? When mm -hmm. I was in France, I didn't let that stop me from wanting to stay in France. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, how am I going to handle this? And then I just turned everything on its nose and my girlfriends and I started shopping together and like la, 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 speaking English and acting like crazy, obnoxious Americans. And we had a blast and uh -huh. it totally fixed the problem and it didn't destroy my experience of living in a really wonderful country, uh -huh. right? So I, I want people to understand that life isn't gonna get easier. Yeah. You're not gonna change people. You can only change yourself. Amen to that, yes. So I, I, I really hope, and that took me a long time to really understand and embrace. Because the challenging times we're going through in the United States, the challenging, the challenging experiences we're having with, you know, just with the environment, with violence, with, you know, with our health, even just with our health. Yeah. 
you if you if you if you let it overcome you, you're never going to be able to embrace all the other wonderful things that are happening in the world. Yes. I know that's easy for me to say. I'm fortunate yeah. enough to live in Taiwan where we have less than 600 COVID cases and under 10 deaths. That's oh, easy oh. for me to say. But I have a lot of other things that weren't easy for me that I had to figure out a way to overcome rather than taking a negative view. So I, I hope that this can be encouraging for, mm -hmm. for women and for people that, you know, don't let, let's say that you don't have a lot of money or you don't have parents that support you or that, you know, your health is not perfect to keep you from experiencing other places. Now, COVID right now, it's, it's, that's tricky. It's, it's yeah. tricky. I know I understand that. But once COVID is over or even embracing other people from other places through the internet, through, through technology, this is a great part of what's happening in a world. I'm connecting with you and I've never met you in person just from technology. I'm not letting it stop me from, you know, still doing or you doing important work that we need to do to, you know, impact other people's lives. That's awesome. Uh, would you say that um, understanding other cultures or living in other places have enriched your mind, your intellect and your life? Would you be the same if you were still living in Philadelphia? Right. Okay. No, no, it, it would, it, I, you know, I know this isn't a, this isn't a, a talk about astrology and I don't know if you subscribe to or anything, but I had someone do my chart uh -huh. just out of curiosity uh -huh. and he's a famous French, French astrologer. Uh -huh. Okay. And he said, this is so fascinating. You have one chart from Philadelphia and you have another chart from Taiwan. And he said, all these red lines you see here from Philadelphia would have been all the obstacles and that you would have had to overcome if you had chosen to just stay in Philadelphia. All these different things wouldn't have been realized. And he said, this is your chart in Taiwan. And there were significantly less red lines, lots more harmonious lines. And he said, this is showing that you living in Taiwan was, is going to help you realize a lot of what you want to do in your life. And I said, to, I remember, I always knew that. I always felt that. But actually seeing that, and you know, he has to get the time of my birth and the location and all this different stuff to do my charts and everything. Mm -hmm. It was, it was amazing. And I said, wow, you know, even though I've gone through so many horrible experiences being overseas that I haven't shared with you in this interview, in my heart, I always felt like being away, living in these other countries was something I needed to do to realize my soul's purpose. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Oh my goodness. I am I am loving this, Diana. I, <laughs> I'm loving this. Thank you so much for sharing this. Seriously. Um, 
we, we, I, I said it was going to be the last question, but no, 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 there is a last question here. <laughs> and that is as an expat, you're seeing everything that's going on in our country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how are you feeling about this? I have been, I have been pretty, pretty devastated since the end of May last year. And I saw, I saw what was happening with the country, you know, slowly, slowly over the past 15, 20 years, I saw things moving in a direction that I wasn't happy with. And I saw the impact that social media was having towards our political systems and governments, not just in the US, but all over the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the downsides to social media and all this technology is that we're, we're seeing everything and having to deal with everything in real time, unfiltered, which can be difficult for us in our emotional states. Like, I don't know as human beings that we can just process so much all the time, like constant information being thrown at us, thrown at us, thrown at us, thrown at us. So I get to the point where I just shut down and I don't watch the news. Like there's long periods of time that I won't look at the news at all. And recently, since the end of May last year, I decided that I would watch just on occasion when really important things came up. And that has been happening more and more often. Uh-huh. And I wish that I could be in a position where I could be like my grandparents, how my grandparents were at my age. You know, with this, you know, the civil rights movement was a tough time, but generally speaking, we weren't all experts in civics Mm -hmm. (laughs) all of us know about every branch of government everything that needs to be passed and how it needs to be passed and I mean literally I really feel like I I could get a 100 in my eighth grade civics class now with everything that's going on because the news is constantly having to share everything because of all the stuff that's going on so I want to just just be able to encourage everyone Mm -hmm. that this is probably the worst of it. The light is at the end of the tunnel. It's coming, you know, have hope. Please don't, don't, don't throw in the towel and think, oh my goodness, forget it. Particularly our young people, Yeah, you know, they're dealing with COVID. They're dealing with so many different things. I mean, I know this must be so frustrating, but again, look at the benefits that are coming out of this. There are hard trends. Daniel Burris is very good where he's talking about there's hard trends and there's soft trends. Look for these opportunities that are coming out of all these things that are happening. Focus on that. Watch only the the amount of news that you need to know what's going on and make informed decisions with your family. After that, turn it off and still try to continue on with your life and building something for yourself. 
like you, Mona, as well as me, we both have our businesses where we want to try to help people with, you know, understanding and appreciating other languages, other people, other cultures. And I particularly focus on foreign language, public speaking and immersion experiences. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to get fall into the trap that, you know, this is the end of the world. Guess what? It's not. We're going to keep going. And you want to be ahead of the pack and not get swallowed into 12 hours of nonstop news. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I do agree with you. And I appreciate that uh, very much. Where can people find you and find out more about your business? Well, my you can find about my business is called Speaking Seed. Speaking Seed, S-E-E-D. You can find me on Facebook. You can also find me on my webpage, speakingseed.com. And if you're interested in learning anything about the emergent experience, foreign language, public speaking, or how I was able to incorporate Mandarin to give uh, speeches, or if you just want any basic help on um, your, your, any speeches or anything, please feel free to go to speakingseed.com and get in touch with me or Speaking Seed on Facebook and send me a Facebook message. I look forward to hearing from you. Here you have it. Get in touch with Diana Watson. Thank you so, so very much, Diana. Uh, It has been wonderful having you. And when are you coming back home? (laughs) I don't know about that, you know? I don't know. I I message my mom on a regular basis. She can still see my face. But coming back home, that may be a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll let you go. And do your thing as a morning in your uh, in where you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everything for the information. You've been very generous. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. Thank you so thank much, Diana. All right, bye bye.